a lot of sleepy state houses are kind of now alive with new ideas, big, bold policies for structural change, a new kind of generation of leaders coming up that are shaking things up in the old way um, and really fighting for a deeper democracy. Welcome to How We Win. All over the country, people are doing extraordinary things. We're giving you the tools that you need to make a difference right now. We don't agonize, we organize. We've won some battles, but we still have more work to do. Today, we're joined by the co-founder of the Democracy Policy Network and author of Dedicated, The Case for Commitment in an Age of Infinite Browsing, Pete Davis. We talk about how committing to civic advocacy year-round and especially in state houses will build our power and just might save our democracy. But first, Mariah and I are going to talk about the surge in COVID cases, the Olympics, and the start of the January 6th Commission. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Mariah Craven. And And this this is How How We We Win. Pete Davis is such an interesting guy, and mm-hmm. um, and he has done such great work at a young age to really uh, galvanize power in state houses, and uh, and not just focused on electoral work, but on uh, advocacy work, and uh, and it's really compelling. So I'm excited for people to hear his interview. Yeah, uh, the the way that he frames things really speaks to me as somebody who's always like changing cities, changing jobs. You know, the mm. idea that we we live in a world where, you know, when when love is just a swipe away, maybe <laughs> you know, maybe an even better love is two swipes away. So let's hold out for that. Um, but but uh, something the way- I need to know what's what's <laughs> what's happening. <laughs> No, I was just not not me personally. Yeah, no, I but, know. But it's a very at the moment. So um, can't wait for people to hear the conversation with him. But first, we have um, some some honestly some heavier topics to talk about. This is a we're moving back into you know tough week territory. Mm. We really are. Uh, there's a nationwide surge in coronavirus cases led by the unvaccinated um, and also the spread of the Delta variant, mm-hmm. which is uh, now um, close to 90 percent of the cases in the U.S. Uh, hits close to home because uh, last week, as we were recording, I got the fun news that I was, in fact, one of the breakthrough cases that everyone mm-hmm. has been talking about. Uh, I feel very special. Uh, <laughs> you know, um, and I have a lot of, a lot of feels about it. Um, I first of all feel extremely fortunate that I was fully vaccinated, um, mm-hmm. before I got the coronavirus. I had a milder case. Uh, I was in bed for three days with a persistent fever mm-hmm. and had some chest, you know, kind of breathing stuff, but very light and uh, am now uh, pretty much fully recovered from it and finally out of house arrest and able to be back out in the world after quarantining. But um, it, it really brought home how scary it must have felt to so many people yeah. who have had this disease and had been separated from their family while they've been sick 
and the family members who have been terrified of their loved ones and who have lost so many loved ones. Again, you know, I'm uh, super lucky and, and uh, you know, we, we have great health care, uh, we have resources, and I was fully vaccinated, so was not uh, terribly concerned that anything terrible would happen. But, um, you know, my daughter, who's going back to school, uh, going to college this fall, all of a sudden she's got all this anxiety about whether or not mm-hmm. she'll actually be able to go to school on campus. And I know there's so many people around the country right now that are worrying about that. And, you know, Mariah, if only there was some kind of, what do you call it, like a, a vaccine that yeah. if we all took it, we wouldn't have to worry about the widespread of, of this uh, of this virus. Yeah, I you know first of all, I'm I'm so glad that you're feeling better and um, very relieved that it it wasn't. And, and this is why people get vaccinated, right? Um, so it's not nearly as bad as it could be. And I think at this point. Um, this is something that has touched all of us, uh, whether all, you know, everyone listening has either had it or is close to someone who has had it. It just goes to show uh, now people, you know, they're potentially people have had it multiple times. So um, get, get vaccinated and encourage all those around you to get vaccinated. And remember, we thought there was a point in earlier in the year, I, I assumed that I wouldn't be able to get vaccinated until the fall uh, because right. the rollout seemed like it was going to be that slow. It's fast-tracked, and we need to take advantage of it. So if you have put it off, whether you're worried about yourself or not, um, there's so many people around you that that could potentially be impacted by it, whether it's, you know, a child with the hopes of going off to college or a child like mine who can't be vaccinated yet. Right. Uh, so many people are depending on on each other um, that we really got to do this. So I, I, um, as you know, and as our listeners will know, I really try uh, to be intentional about my compassion for everyone, for all all humans and all Americans, regardless of your political party, regardless of what you believe. And um, uh, there are people that I cannot give quarter to um, mm-hmm. who are, are peddling hate. But I, I know that we are in a, a crisis in our country right now where a, a very large swath of our population are cult members have been indoctrinated by lies, have been fed misinformation, have been made to uh, doubt science, to doubt basic facts. And, uh, you know, if, if I've said this before, if I had a family member who had joined a cult, uh, I would not vilify them. I would want to help them. I would, mm. I would want to get them out of that cult. Um, but it's really hard when you have so many people who are not vaccinated because of this political cult of personality, when you think of all the people that Donald Trump has literally killed because of his rhetoric and, um, and all of it, all of it. Um, so 
I, I've I've been uh, watching the news. I've been watching the Olympics. I've been in uh, you know in in my bedroom locked down for the last ten days, as I said, and trying to have compassion for my fellow humans who choose not to be uh, vaccinated. And at this point, it, it's it's really really simple: get vaccinated, and you just might save your own life, or you might save someone else's life. Don't get vaccinated, and you just might die, or you just might kill someone else. Uh, it's really that simple. Oh my gosh! Yeah, well said. There's um an an interesting article on on Vice right now. You talking about the cults kind of mentality made me think of it. But um, it's an interview with one of the survivors of the Parkland shooting, who mm. is talking about how um his dad early on in the pandemic became, you know, very frustrated with the mask mandates and the and the lockdowns and went online to find a, a like-minded community and he found it in QAnon and now believes that the Parkland shooting didn't happen. Wow. Even though his, his own child was there. It sounds like there's also some, uh, you know, a substance abuse issue going on as well, but will accuse his child of of being a crisis actor. Wow. What what you're talking about, what we're seeing in our country right now, and we're going to talk about this a little bit later as we talk about the January 6th uh, hearing. Um, there is a there is a cult in our country, and some of those people may be beyond help. This young man's father might be beyond help at this mm. point. Um, so the rest of us <laughs> are going to have to step up and 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 do the things that make sense. Yeah, yeah. It's, like you said, it's it's hard to have compassion for that, but we can acknowledge that it's there and figure out how we work around it. Yeah, it, it's it's hard to, you know, you don't want to write people off in general. At least I don't, you know, um, I, I, I don't want to be like, there's no hope for these people. But there's, there's certainly uh, huge swaths that are, um, like you said, they're, they're just kind of lost. I don't know. I, I wish I had a better answer for it. Um, and, you know, we'll, we'll be talking a lot about it uh, in the coming months. I'm, I'm mm -hmm. really excited about bringing on more experts in the psychology of, of cults and, um, and, you know, messaging and talking about all this in, in, uh, in, in more detail. The other thing that you mentioned is mental health. And, and I think that that's something that uh, a lot of people, I know we'll talk about it a little bit later too, but um we are we are in a mental health crisis in our country right absolutely. now. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and and it has to do with so many factors. We talked about the op opioid epidemic a few weeks ago, and and thankfully got a good um, ruling on that. That's going to put some money into uh, mental mm -hmm. health and and treatment for opioid addictions. But that's gone up since the coronavirus. Um, mm -hmm. The political. And, but listen, we're all traumatized. Yeah, yeah, and now and now with this. Uh, resurgence, it's it's kind of like we had, you know, one thing I, I would like all those advertisers that are flooding the uh, airwaves with commercials about we're back to mm. kind of like slow your roll on that a little bit because I'm watching like Viking cruises and all the airlines oh and God, all this yeah. stuff. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm on quarantine in my bedroom and I can't leave my house, you know, and I'm like, too soon, too soon. Like slow roll the we're back right now because yeah. it's just, it, uh, it's too much of a roller coaster we've been on. Um, and, How are people uh, still going on cruises also? Like, you know, we, <laughs> all, we, all, we all need a vacation, but... Maybe a, maybe 
maybe a cruise isn't the way to go right now. I don't, I, know. I don't want to slam cruise people. In general, I'm not. I, that's not something that appeals to me. I used to love watching Love Boat as a kid, but that's about it. <laughs> <laughs> maybe let's let's wait. Let's wait a little bit. Do the road trip this summer. <laughs> uh, speaking of persisting through a roller coaster mm. of real adversity. Um, uh, we are mourning the loss of one of the great icons of the civil rights uh, and SNCC leaders, Bob Moses. Yeah, Bob uh, passed away a few days ago. And um, I don't know if you know this, but Bob is the reason that I ended up in Los Angeles again. Like I, I did not. I uh, co-wrote a TV show about Bob's life and sold the pilot, and that's how I ended up in Los Angeles. Okay. I, I, moved, I moved there because I was going to make a TV show that still isn't, still <laughs> hasn't been made yet. So this is a few years back. But um, Bob has, he had a fascinating life, and he is one of the godfathers of the modern organizing movement. He, uh, in 1960, was a, a teacher in New York and read about the student sit-ins um, down south and packed up his bags and, and, and went down south to help out with that and ended up being sent to Mississippi. And he said to the folks in Mississippi, um, I'm here to help you, you know, do sit-ins and, and protests and, and things like that. And they were like, we can't afford, like, if we go sit at a lunch counter, we can't buy lunch. They were starving. And mm. it, when he asked them, well, what, what do you need? They said, we want the vote. Because if we get the vote, um, then we can, we can change things so that we have better education and, and more food and, and economic opportunities. And at that time, if you're a black person in Mississippi trying to vote, you um, might be murdered uh, you might be beaten, you might lose your home or your job. So he uh, helped folks get registered to vote, and it started this incredible movement that the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee was built around. And he wouldn't, he probably would not, unless you ask him, he wouldn't tell you all of this. He was a very low-key person, but he really believed that the sharecroppers, the maids, the the farmers, like they held the power even more than a Dr. King did if they could work together uh, and demand the vote. And that's what, that's what they did. So thank you for letting me talk about him. He has an incredible life. I hope that show gets made because I do want people to, to see what he was up against and how he believed in the power of every person to, to, to create change. Absolutely. And I do obviously remember that you had a show in development uh, about the civil rights movement, but I didn't know it was about Bob Moses specifically. So it was. Yeah, this was um, we're, we're losing this 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 uh, the leaders of the movement, the civil rights movement are, are aging. We've lost a lot of them. Yeah. Um, this one really hurt. He was he was a quiet giant and. Um, Please read his book and, and look into his work uh, as you as we talk about you know getting motivated for the work ahead of us. Um, uh, it, it's all there, and the things that our listeners do when they knock on doors, the things that they say, like all of this was born on a dusty road in, in Mississippi with people like Bob. 
Mm. That's really powerful. I certainly will read his book. I hope everyone else does, too. That's inspiring. Radical Equations. He was a math nerd as well. So. <laughs> yeah, he made it uh, uh, another late, later in life, right? Um, mm-hmm. uh, the focus of his work to uh, teach math to um, uh, black kids especially, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, he saw, yes, he saw education and particularly math education as, as another way out of, out of poverty and, and inequality. Well, he's uh, he's not just our hero of the week. He's our hero of the century, really. Um, But uh, Mm -hmm. let's talk about our hero of the week. You know, I can't take credit for this, uh, folks. I when I saw who Steve's hero of the week was, I was like, (laughs) Steve. Steve, okay. This is this is worse than when you made the Supreme Court your hero of the week. <laughs> <laughs> no, please don't bring that up. Okay, uh, I, sometimes I'm not right about things. Okay, I'll just put that out there. Like, like we're supposed to. You come to us because we're trusted messengers of of the truth and good information most of the time. Um, but so I was going to say, admire. I admire your open mindedness. So my hero of the week this week was going to be okay. Liz Cheney. <laughs> and, uh, and the reason for that was because of her full-throated rebuke of uh, McCarthy's denigration of the January 6th commission and right. his attack on Pelosi at the Pelosi, of course, refused to have the gems on the committee who were just going to make a mockery of this right. committee. And she made uh, came out immediately and, and made a very strong statement uh, against him, the actions and, uh, and the integrity of the committee. So I appreciated that because we need, we really need Republicans, even though McCarthy now is calling uh, her a Pelosi Republican, which, by the way, isn't a thing. Um, oh, he's so lame. Yeah, he, he's he's really just like they're all in a battle for the worst. But anyway, she was going to be because I wanted to throw a little olive branch out to a Republican who stands up for democracy. But I couldn't fully embrace her as as our hero of the week. So instead, mm-hmm. my hero of the week is being shared mm-hmm. by uh, Kentucky's Alexis Toon, who <laughs> called in to Senator Rand Paul's town hall with uh, some choice words. Let's listen to them now. Hi, Senator. I am a proud Kentucky citizen, and I just wanted to tell you to get and also um montana man dan bailey who came up to tucker carlson at a uh fishing shop that bears dan bailey's name but it's a different dan bailey and uh and told him that he was the worst human on the planet i won't play that audio because it's a little hard to make out um but check it out it's delicious so uh so really i i went from trying to be magnanimous and and featuring a Republican on our Hero of the Week to saying, screw that, Alexis Toon, Dan Bailey, you two are my Heroes of the Week. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) I will say this. I think that Liz Cheney is going to be instrumental in us getting 
to a little bit closer to the full truth of what happened on January 6th, because I think that she's been intimating um, that she knows things that, that haven't come out yet. And I'm thinking specifically that maybe the reason Jim Jordan, aside from being in, a, he would be an obstructionist on this commission, that he might actually be a witness right. uh, or or that some things might come out about how he was involved in the events leading up to January 6th. And I think Cheney knows that. Yeah. And McCarthy certainly uh, uh, is a witness. Like he, oh my gosh, he, yeah. He for sure needs to be called. That's going to be an interesting moment on, on uh, whether they choose to compel him because he certainly won't go um, voluntarily. Well, let's talk about our reasons for hope. The January 6th commission kicked off yesterday with some really powerful testimony from uh, some of the Capitol Police and that just really brought home uh, the horror of that day. And um, it's my reason for hope that this committee's finally uh, moving forward. The uh, the testimony is carried live uh, on all the uh, networks, including Fox, including Newsmax, and I don't know how they're going to spin it and slant the coverage of it, but um, it's really important that the American people hear from these uh, Capitol police officers and uh, and hear the testimony of everyone in, involved in this and uh, and are reminded of of that this wasn't a bunch of uh, kisses and hugs from loving people as Donald Trump said in his recent rally that um, that this insurrection there needs to be accountability and we need to make sure that uh, history does not repeat itself yeah I I don't really see how you can watch the the testimony and watch this new footage and not be just horrified. And if you wa- were involved in it, uh, you know, very nervous. Um, but I think at this point, I think this is like the the um, the impeachments. Like it, it's being done for voters and and for the public, uh, so that we can see and and hold people accountable. Because I I don't think the Republicans, for the most part, are going to hold themselves accountable. But I don't see how they could not listen to those officers and just be uh just not be outraged by what happened so yeah it feels like a very long time coming to get to this moment uh but these this testimony this new footage all of this needs to see the light of day and um and so i'm uh i'm hopeful that it will have an impact and um and I'm grateful to Nancy Pelosi for her leadership in getting this committee um, put together, uh, making it a bipartisan committee, which it is. Um, and uh, and I'm looking forward to the testimony that will come in, in the days that follow. Yep. That's definitely a reason to be hopeful. Um, mine is actually ten- tangentially related. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to weave some things together here. I was in a We're convers- along for the ride, Mariah. We're All with right. you. Come <laughs> on with me. I was, um, I was in some, some conversations um, with some members of Congress this week about a variety of things, including mental health. And um, one of them, during the mental health piece, started talking about what it was like being in the Capitol on January 6th. You know, I said earlier that as a country, we're all traumatized. I suspect there are people who were there that day that have some significant PTSD. Mm. And this person um, 
was not sure that they were going to make it out of the capital alive. They were, they were, there was a group that was one of the last to leave that they, they weren't convinced that they were, were going to be able to get out. This person talked about having nightmares, not being able to sleep, um, and this all related back to the need for better, better mental health care in our country. And that starts by being open and honest about, about things like these. So, you know, what gives me hope is seeing people like um, this person, you know, this is this person's story to share, um, so I won't, but I will say, you know, Simone Biles um, mm -hmm. came out this week very publicly, um, stepping away from, from the Olympics for the time being, um, and it sounds like it, it's to take care of her mental health. We saw Naomi Osaka do it earlier this summer in France, and when these high-profile people say it's okay to be mentally hurting and to take care of yourself. That is going to help so many average everyday people who are dealing with the trauma of living right now and then the very unique traumas that, that many people also have in their lives. So that's what gives me reason for hope, these open conversations and the support these folks are giving and receiving. Well said. I, I love I love that so much because, as we mentioned earlier, we are just in such a mental health crisis. You know, we were before the pandemic. We were before this too. Absolutely. And, and, and like you said, you know, everyone has their their daily struggles and uh, don't have uh, most most people, most Americans, I should say, don't have access to mental health resources either. Right. And so, <laughs> you know, this is one of those unintended positive consequences of a really terrible uh, situation is that mental health is being brought front and center and the importance of investing in that for our communities and for our citizens is um, has never been more uh, apparent than it is right now. Uh, I've been, as I said, watching a lot of the Olympics. I, I know you've probably watched a lot. The gymnastics was certainly exciting to watch and um, I have nothing but admiration for Simone Biles and how she's handled this uh, this whole situation. I can't imagine the pressure she must have felt of just going into it with everyone saying she's the goat, she's the greatest of all time, yeah. she's the hope, she's going to do yeah. all. You know, she can do tricks and jumps and flips that nobody else can do, and uh, all of that remains true. But um, she has earned the privilege, uh, not even privilege. Like we we all all should be able to take a step back when we need it, when we're under that kind of pressure. I feel guilty because I feel like like I've been one of those people like, oh my God, the best part of the Olympics is going to be Simone. She's going to do so many things. She's the GOAT. She's the, mm. uh, and like, oh my gosh, like it's, it was too, it's too much before, before, before she even got to Tokyo. And, and she doesn't have her family with her, which she usually does. Uh, and not yeah. to mention that they were supposed to do this a year ago. Yeah. So all of this has been loop, like piling on the expectations, the, yeah. the tension, the, all, all that for an, an extra whole extra year on top of all that. With, you know. So having said all that, I, I want to give my hats off to the greatest example uh, for me, how mm. I want to live my life. I want mm. to live my life like a women's volleyball team player because the women's volleyball team, they know how to do it. They win a point and they lose their minds. They group hug and just like, you know, big, big hugs and everything. They lose a point 
and they group hug and they're together and they're like, they're, it's like every single point is an opportunity to stake, take stock of their lives and support each other. And, um, and that's how I want to live my life, you know, uh, point by point, celebrating the wins, lifting each other up when there's defeats and, uh, and moving forward point by point. So that's the great example to me is the ladies volleyball team. They're awesome. Oh, that's so nice. What a what a nice philosophy, Steve. <laughs> I was thinking I would want to be like the the Australian swim coach who was, you know, freaking out and <laughs> it looked like he was going to go over a balcony in excitement air humping while you know this poor <laughs> poor olympic volunteer tried to <laughs> calm him down um but what you're what you're talking about is probably much more reasonable <laughs> also sustainable I'll, I'll throw i'll throw in there uh the table tennis players too oh i haven't seen the table tennis the, players they, yet. oh you got to watch some table tennis because they lose their shit after every point that they win, they just completely go insane. They yell, they jump around. <laughs> it's really, really fun to watch. This stuff should be fun. I know yeah. it's 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 a lot of pressure for the athletes, but uh, hopefully it's it's fun too. <laughs> well, uh, that's a lot. Um, we've talked a bunch. Let's talk about your marching orders now with this week's to-do list. What is this note? Less than a hundred days till Virginia? That's right. The oh Virginia God. election is less than a hundred days away Whoa. right now. If you have not gotten involved to phone bank or to donate to some of these great candidates, we've had a few of them on our show already to talk about how important this election in Virginia is. It is, as I will remind everybody, a bellwether for what mm -hmm. is going to happen in the midterms. We really need to show the GOP that we are not going to lose that trifecta and that our energy is sustained. We are committed. That's a tease to our interview, but um, we, are <laughs> we are committed to making sure we we stay focused on Virginia. So, uh, go to swingleft.org and sign up for uh, a way to get involved in Virginia if you haven't already. If you have, then let's do some more. Time time's a ticking, and we can we can be like the the volleyball team and and pump each other up and and get through the next hundred less than a hundred days. Group um, hug, everybody. Group hug. The the uh, other thing to do for, for our to-do list this week is, um, this is really cute, Steve. I give you credit for coming up with Pod Blast Summer. <laughs> it's Pod a little bit of a Blast Summer. A little bit of a tongue twister. Now there's a song to go with it. Um, <laughs> but we want you to share this podcast with your friends so we can keep building community uh, and get more folks out volunteering in the coming months and years. That's right. We have uh, a bunch of new listeners. Um, welcome. Welcome and thank you. Welcome new peeps. We haven't done like, I guess it's like a membership Drive. I don't know. It's Pod Blast Summer. You know, we haven't done it in a while, but we want to amplify the work that we do on this podcast so we can drive more people into action, help win elections. So the easy thing you can do is to share this podcast with three friends. Share it with three friends. Mariah always likes to suggest that you text them because then you can text them the link to the subscribe uh, on podcast on Apple or wherever you do it, which is mm -hmm. really good advice, Mariah. So 
Um, I've been to too many parties where I'm like, you should listen to my podcast. And people are like, great. I'll definitely do that. And they walk away. And I'm like, I haven't told you the name yet. (laughs) (laughs) It's how we win. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So a link they can't get away from. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) All right. So uh, two things to do this week. Get three people to subscribe to this podcast and sign up to volunteer in Virginia at swingleft.org. Next up, we've got a great interview with Pete Davis, uh, and he's going to motivate and mobilize us to get involved and stay involved. Pete Davis is a writer and civic advocate who works on projects aimed at deepening American democracy and solidarity. Pete is the co-founder of the Democracy Policy Network, a state policy organization focused on raising up ideas that deepen democracy, and is the author of the book Dedicated, The Case for Commitment in an Age of Infinite Browsing. He's also the co-creator of Statehouse Futures, a progressive strategy summit that is happening today. Pete, thank you for taking the time to talk to us. Thanks so much for having me on. It's a big day in our world, and we're so appreciative of you uh, sharing the news. Before we get into Statehouse Futures, I want to know what set you on this path. How did you get started and what propelled you into action? Yeah, you know, I've always been really taken by the idea of what I call deepening democracy, expanding Mm -hmm. more power to more people in more ways. That's our quick way of putting it. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, it started with the kind of what we call the kind of center of gravity of deepening democracy, really caring about elections and basic civic engagement of getting people involved in public life. But how this eventually became the Democracy Policy Network is, you know, as you start thinking about increasing participation in public life, you start seeing that it's so much bigger than just voting in elections. It's all of the different institutions and policies that strengthen people to participate, create communities that are conducive to participation, that open up economic and Mm. uh, government power to the participation of more people in more ways, that break down barriers of racial and gender injustice. And so that idea flourished into this uh, desire that if we're going to care about deepening democracy, we got to care about raising up these ideas that are the concrete manifestation of what actually deepens democracy, which is what we do with the Democracy Policy Network. Wow. Uh, Can you talk a little bit, just for people who don't know what Democracy Policy Network is, can you talk about that org and and what your you talked a little bit about what your goals are, but you know how do you do that within the organization? Yeah, so I, I've talked about it from the sky. Let's talk about it from the soil. You know, it <laughs> right. was, uh, there you go. We let's start in the abstract, get to concrete. So, um, so the basic idea of of Deepin, which is our DPN, the short for Democracy Policy Network, is ah. we it's it's basically a two sided network. On one side are this new generation of state legislators that are totally inspiring. And, you know, listeners of your podcast will know about these state legislators, but if there's any new listeners who aren't turned on to this corner um, of the world, you know, it's uh, the state level of government is kind of the, the forgotten child of America, of the American system. You know, we hear a lot about mayors, you know, big personalities, you kind of know your mayor and you know, the president and Congress, but there's a lot happening at that middle level in the States. Mm -hmm. You two don't need 
to hear this though. Um, preaching to the choir here, and we've been Keep so preaching, inspired. Though. It's so important. <laughs> yeah, we've really been is. so inspired by this new generation because in the last ten years, there's been a real change in these state legislatures. A lot of sleepy state houses are mm-hmm. kind of now alive with new ideas big, bold policies for structural change, a new kind of generation of leaders coming up that are shaking things up in the old way um, and really fighting for a deeper democracy. Um, And just one more pitch for state legislators. I feel like it's at the intersection of access and power. Mm. You know, if you're an ordinary citizen, your state legislator is really accessible. Um, You you can write to them and you'll probably get a meeting if you write to them enough. And yet... It's they have really serious power. They they you know yeah. they affect millions of people and can really change things. And their ideas usually percolate up to the national level. So that's on one side. We want to organize this new generation of state leaders. Mm-hmm. And then on the other side is we want to organize the this kind of new wave of democratic experiments happening in the policy world. Mm-hmm. So all across the country, you know. A f- are the future of a deeper democracy in America is already in existence in piecemeal experiments, countercultures, and rebellions happening in different places. In Washington, in Seattle, there's a totally different way of doing campaign finance, democracy vouchers. Mm-hmm. In Vermont, there's prison voting. In Colorado, there's a whole worker ownership commission. In California, they just expanded public banks to be the second state to have public banks after right. North Dakota. You know, in Virginia, uh, election day is a state holiday. In Illinois, uh, the in Vermont and Illinois, they have um, interesting things around community land trusts. I could go on, but what we do on the other side of our network is we gather, package, organize, and amplify these state policy ideas for deepening democracy and connect them with this new generation of state legislators. And out of that comes state legislators championing and spreading these new ideas so that we can slowly over time, piece by piece, project by project, policy by policy, expand more power to more people in more ways in this country. Well, you've made the case for for paying attention to you and, and focusing on state houses. Talk to us about the State House Futures Conference, um, what's going on and who's involved. Well, so we, we're always, you know, at deep and churning away at, you know, making policy kits on these new ideas, holding these little mini briefings with um, state legislators. And what we wanted to do with State House Futures, which is a big policy and strategy summit for progressive state legislators, is we wanted to have a big giant version of one of our briefings um, where instead Mm. of doing one or two issues, let's do 10 different panels. And instead of having, you know, 50 or so legislators, let's try to have, you know, we're current, our RSVPs are at 500 now um, of people attending and it's open to the public. Even if you're not a state legislator, if you fancy yourself, someone who cares about state politics, you can come to. And so, so we're partnering, you know, we are very, our center of gravity at Deepin is on the policy side and we're partnering with the Run for Something Action Fund, who is a, mm-hmm. such a great organization fighting on the legislator side, you know, helping people run for office. And we decided let's take the best of both of our orgs, you know, we'll do a few sessions on transformative policies that are coming up the pike mm-hmm. in kind of a, the Ameri- American political life. And you can do, you can coordinate, run for something, Action Fund can coordinate um, 
uh, strategies that are coming up for winning power for these state legislators. And hopefully that comes together to show a vision of what the, you know, the exciting things coming up the pike in state houses across the country. That's why we call it state house futures. It's not going to be about the issues and strategies you've been hearing about for the last 10 years, mm. which are very important. Those fights go on. It's going to be about the ones where you're seeing it in one or two states and we're trying to expand them to all 50 states. Wow. That's so compelling, and uh, I'm so appreciative of, of all that work that you're all doing. First of yeah. all, shout out to Run for Something, too. We love them, mm -hmm. love Amanda and Ross. They've both been guests yeah. on our show. And uh, and also, like, this is, you know, how we really invest in the next 10 years. It's very aligned with what we're doing at Swing Left, is um, investing in these new legislatures, investing locally in the state houses, which is where our power needs to be built and sustained. And, and I love y your work doing it around these innovative, uh, progressive issues and campaigns, too, because uh, that involves local communities on the ground, organizers in states like, you know, we, we hear them all the time, Georgia and Texas and Virginia uh, that have been doing this for a long time and we can continue to support their work. So it, it sounds really, really dope for lack of a uh, <laughs> better term. <laughs> I hope everyone jumps into the conference today and, and takes mm -hmm. a peek. I'm so happy you, you say that. It touches on so many, you know, we have so much overlap in what we believe in, you know, in yeah. our theories of change. You know, three things mm -hmm. I'm noticing here. One is, you know, the power of the states. My my state legislator, shout out to Marcus Simon and the Virginia House of Delegates, um, always likes to say the dream is that the presidential candidates run on the coattails of the state legislators. That would yes. be kind of a deeper democracy. But and that really to works too, not to interrupt, but but right now we are seeing the reverse coattails is actually a very effective uh, way to run. Amen. You know, you can, you know, the center of gravity of politics should be in the people that are closest uh, to knowing their constituents. And it should be that when you were on a run for something higher, you have to kind of really go through a process of knowing the people that are the ones that really know the felt needs and, you know, daily place, daily struggles of where Paul is the rubber, it's the road on policy. Yeah. The second I noticed was long-term. I just, I love that. You know, we are so, the Trump era was such a, it, it was a time when we needed to be reactive. There was always something new happening. It was part of his strategy. It's like, right. let's make something new. And then the rest of us have to react. But reacting immediately might be the thing that can defeat the Trumps of the world, but what's going to defeat the disease that caused the symptom of Trump being mm -hmm. elected is going to be a long, emer it's the long emergency, not the acute emergency. And we need to be on offense, affirmatively building the foundation of a deeper democracy, not just reacting to threats to democracy, if we want to really solve this problem. And then third, I'm, I'm so glad that y'all who are so uh, close to seeing all these different leaders fighting for the see the power of policy, because I think there's this common refrain that like, you know, we need to only talk about values and never talk about policy, or we need to only mm. talk in the abstract and never talk in the concrete. But I, you know, the more I, I, I've been involved in this, the more I've seen that ordinary voters 
really don't want to be condescended to and say, hey, I'll figure out the policy. Just let's talk about how we all believe in, you know, right. love or expanding power or inclusion <laughs> or something. They want to know, you know, as the old Beatles song goes, I'd love to see the plan. And I think when <laughs> candidates really talk about the plans and they talk about, you know, there's this amazing thing called social housing that could solve our housing crisis. Or did you know Oregon passed Measure 110 that is totally changing the way we do drug treatment um, or that in New Zealand, there's this interesting way they do restorative justice that DC is experimenting with. Or, you know, there's there's not just this fight of asking corporations to um, please treat us nicely. There's a totally alternate way of organizing production called worker ownership and worker cooperatives that is taking off in certain states. I think those sparks of alternatives in the real concrete can not only be the thing we do after we win elections, they can help us win elections too. Yeah. Um, I, I want to go back to an idea that, that you mentioned a couple minutes ago, and, and you talk about it in your book dedicated um, this this idea of long haul activism. And like you said, like the last few years, it was very intentional, kind of this wearing us down and and like, oh, you, you know, we're always in crisis mode. Um, and that that's continued into this next administration that we're in. Um, and then all the other, you know, things happening with our democracy and our planet and and the pandemic. Um, uh, it's, this is taking a toll on everyone, but we do need people to continue to be involved to accomplish the work. So um, what lessons from history have you learned about staying dedicated? Yeah, I'm so glad you brought this up. It's so connected. Um, the uh, history is just filled with this very uh, foundational lesson, which is that things don't happen very quickly, but they do happen in, you know, in a few decades, you know, it's, if you're setting out on a big cause, um, you might be disappointed if you think you're going to kind of accomplish all you wish to accomplish in a year, mm -hmm. but you're going to be incredibly pleasantly surprised, astounded, amazed. You're going to find it miraculous what you can get done in 10 or 20 years. And mm -hmm. history is just totally filled with these stories. You know, people, I, I, I think we have too many people that, I, I wrote this book partially because we have too many people that think things will happen very quickly. And then when they see that they don't happen quickly, they think they will never happen. Mm. But it's actually in the middle. And totally more entrenched, more difficult, more vexing challenges than any we face today have been overcome within the span of kind of an ordinary lifetime. The abolitionist movement, you know, there was an abolitionist move, the most important movement in American history um, by far. Um, you know, there were abolitionists in the 1700s, there were abolitionists in the 1600s, but the real kind of hardcore people having weekly meetings, abolitionist movement started in about the 1820s. Mm. And by 1865, you know, they didn't, they're obviously reverberating, uh, as we've all been talking about over the last two years, there's obviously reverberating challenges after 1865. But the main bulk of the project of abolition was done in 45 years. Mm. And if you're a 20 something listening to this, there's no reason <laughs> to believe we can't have something happen in 45 years in our lifetimes, too. And even mm. if you're older than that, you know, but um, I, I especially am disappointed when I see that cynicism among people who have 45 years ahead of them. 
I talked for the book. I, I, I didn't get to interview any abolitionists, but, um, um, <laughs> but I, I interviewed uh, another 32-year cause. I interviewed Evan Wolfson for the book, who was, in 1983, wrote his third-year law paper on the constitutional right for, to same-sex marriage. Mm. And it was considered a novelty law paper. It was kind of thought, you know, oh, Evan, what an interesting topic. You know, let's put it at the end of the review. Right. It's, it's kind of a clever idea. You know, it's not anything that's relevant to anything that's actually happening in the world. He spends 10 years trying to convince his own movement to take up the cause. Mm. Then he spends 10 years following the reverberations out of, you know, a small success in Hawaii. Then he finally gets the Massachusetts success, and this is him along with many other people, um, finally gets the Massachusetts success of legalizing gay marriage in 2004, then spends another 10 years fighting state by state Mm. until 2015, 32 years after um, he originally wrote that third year law paper, he read in Obergefell Mm-hmm. writing that was sounded eerily like the person who was writing it had wrote, read his original law paper from 32 wow. years earlier and saw his legal writing go from the most inconsequential legal writing, a third year law school paper to the most consequential, a Supreme court decision from, you know, the gay rights movement fighting to just not get fired from their work or kicked out of their house or to be allowed to be public school teachers to being fully to fully having safe sex marriage legalized in this country. Again, it didn't happen in a year, but it w- if you had crossed your arms and gotten cynical in 1985 and said, Evan, yeah. you're crazy. There's nothing we can do. You would have been totally wrong. 32 years later, things have changed. And if we're out there fighting for racial justice or a deepener democracy or economic equality or having the last fossil fuel stay in, uh, you know, stay in the ground, there's no reason to believe that's not a 30 year walk away too. Wow. That, that sounds very hopeful mm-hmm. and also uh, pretty exhausting at the same time, <laughs> I'm sure for uh, a lot of people who have been doing this. I remember, I, I'm, I consider myself class of November 2016, right? I really jumped into this work in earnest after Trump was elected, like many, many, many others. And I remember uh, marching and working alongside with older activists who were holding up signs like, I can't believe I have to keep doing this shit. Right. Um, and uh, and so like the, the long work of activism can be uh, exhausting and demoralizing, um, but it's hopeful because you've shown with your examples and we know from history that um, that we can affect change. What are some tips for helping people navigate that uh, that exhaustion <laughs> that that you've learned from the people who have come before us yeah it's a that was one of my favorite parts. i interviewed 50 long-haul heroes for the book and i i loved asking them about this question um and i got some really great tips so you know evan wolfson told me and many others first you know like we were talking about one is to study history to know that and not just take um to take, um, you know, to take uh, solace from the past that other people have been through this before, um, and that you're not alone in kind of the story of history. You're part of a, you know, in my in my view, all these justice causes we care about today are part of a long. American radical democratic tradition and you're kind of the baton has been passed to you and we happen to be born in this time and this is our fight that we have to have in this century. A second is, you know, take um, build community as you go, you know, 
you're not able to do this alone. You have to have things that involve meeting up regularly with other people and doing it together. And, you know, I talked to people, I wanted to talk to people who weren't winning their battles. Mm. I talked to Medea Benjamin who fights against imperialism. You know, it's nice talking to Evan Wolfson after he won and, you know, is on the cover of New York times. And they, they literally had him as the like grand marshal of the pride parade. And he's like, yeah, commitment's great. And so I wanted to interview someone <laughs> who hadn't won their battle yet. Um, yeah. And, um, and, you know, I inv- interviewed Medea Benjamin. She hasn't succeeded in kind of ending global American imperialism yet. Um, she's one of the founders of Code Pink. Um, and she said, you know, yeah, I haven't won the war yet, but I've won many battles. We've gotten many, you know, we've, we have to notice the victories we get along the way. And I always try to make sure that I'm developing friendships with the allies that I'm working on this at all mm-hmm. times. Because in the hard times, those are the people you have to turn to. A third piece of advice I, I saw was that um, it's to to know from the beginning it's going to be a long haul. And thus, um, I love this one guy, Monty Anderson. He told me, you have to keep an even keel because you're going to burn out if you're constantly surprised or disappointed. Don't like expect much. Don't expect it's going to go great and then you'll be disappointed and don't expect that it's never going to work and then you'll be surprised and then it'll mm. just be this emotional roller coaster instead just mm. be like every day we're going to keep doing the work and what's going to come is going to come and if a good thing comes he said when you're up you got to get humble and when you're down you got to get grateful mm. you know and he said i felt like oh it's like a human hvac machine you know when it gets too cold <laughs> remember to get hot when it gets too hot remember to get cold and when you do that, you keep an even keel and you might be happy at times. You might be sad. You might be reaping. You might be sowing, but you're not going to be kind of whipped around because you're, you're clear eyed at the beginning that this is a long walk. And the way they do that is they make it a ritual. You know, they make it, you know, we're going to have our weekly meeting every week. Hmm. We're going to have our weekly meeting when things are good. Yeah. We're going to have our weekly meeting when things are bad. We're going to have our weekly meeting when the weekly meeting is, we have a, a hundred things on the agenda because things are happening right now. And we're going to have our weekly meeting when we're like, we just had a big loss or a big win and we don't really know what the next chapter is. And um, you just keep, and what you think about is you don't think about, am I winning? Am I losing? Am, are we doing great or not? You think, well, it's Tuesday. It's 7 p.m. We've made a promise to each other that we have our weekly meeting at Tuesday at <laughs> 7 p.m. And we keep going. And that's what I've noticed in all these long haul heroes. They're very steady. Wow. Um, so we got to ask you the, the question that we ask every guest. And I, I think that you might have the, the most um, fodder for, for this to answer this question. Um, what gives you the most hope for our future? Oh, uh, well, you know, it's, it's going to be an obvious answer because of what we do at Deepin. But I am just so completely hopeful by the people that are cultivating alternatives um, in the tiniest forms in every nook and cranny of this country. And so I'll give a few concrete examples so it's not just kind of pablum, but, um, you know, there's all, you know, there are people that want to say, oh, the housing system will always be this way. The economy will always be this way. Elections and democracy will always be this way. And there are others that say, well, let's try to experiment Hmm. with a different way. And so, you know, I'll just talk about the sixth very quickly that we're we're featuring at Statehouse Futures today. 
you know, the people in Washington that said, we're going to have a cleaner, uh, we're going to have a green buildings bill mm -hmm. that's going to make sure every build commercial building built in Washington is about our green future, not about our fossil fuel past. The people in Seattle that are fighting for democracy vouchers where everyone gets to participate in our campaign finance system. The people in Maryland and California bringing back the idea of social housing. The people in Colorado and Illinois fighting for worker ownership, not just corporate ownership the people in New York and uh, North Dakota and California fighting for public banks and the people in Oregon that said, we're not going to have a drug war anymore. We're going to have a system of rehabilitation um, that follows the Portuguese model where it's all rehab. It's not punitive drug, uh, drug uh, incarceration. Mm -hmm. um, and those are just six of the, I, I swear I'm not exaggerating here, hundreds of thousands of little experiments happening all across the country that any of your listeners can join up with um, and start prefiguring the future we want in the present right now. That's very hopeful yeah. and exciting, uh, very exciting work. And I, I wish we'd had this conversation, uh, especially your tips for long haul activism, uh, like three or four years ago, but <laughs> I'm thrilled that we got the chance to have it right now, yeah. nonetheless. So uh, Pete Davis, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you so much. And you, uh, you two and everyone at Swing Left is such a, a exemplar of the spirit of long haul heroism. So I'm so grateful to be in conversation with you. Thank you for joining us today. This is how we win. We win when we all get involved and stay engaged. How are you standing engaged this year? We want to hear from you. Tweet to us at BluesBoySteve and at Mariah underscore Craven, or send us an email at podcast at swingleft.org. Make sure you subscribe, rate and review on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to share this with three friends. That's right. Um, and you can do that by letting them know you're listening. Share our show on social media. Check out our page at swingleft.org slash podcast. You can also sign up to volunteer there. That's right. We appreciate you being here with us every week, and we will be back with some more next Wednesday. See you then. See you then.